Now, I'd like you to, to turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 16 to probably one of the m- most familiar and memorable parables. It's a story that is told by Jesus of, of Lazarus and the rich man. It is probably one of the most colorful stories that was told by Jesus. It provided uh, so much in the way of an understanding of heaven and hell. It, 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 uh, it provides a detailed view of heaven and hell. And it draws on the extremes of human life. There in this story we have the picture of the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor. You, you see these extremes and there's lots of color. And on the surface it seems, or at least to me, it seems to be a, a simple and straightforward parable. But then again, appearances can be deceiving, and it helps to study a little bit further. In my study this week, I began to realize how controversial this parable really is. In fact, when I went onto the internet, I, I did a study search just to see how others have dealt with this on Lazarus and the rich man, or Dives, by the way, and he has a name. Uh, the Latin word for rich man is Dives, and so they've given him that name. And, and when I went on to the search, I came up with over 5,000 studies of this passage. <laughs> you know, whenever you preach, at least as a preacher, I, I want to make sure that I've covered just about everything in my study. And so I'm able to be definitive and say the final word about what this passage really means. But 5,000 takes, I, I, I really don't think so. There are some who uh, refuse to see this as a parable, actually. In fact, there's a few who suggest that this may actually have been an actual event. <laughs> and their reasons are honorable. They want to see this passage as a, as a source of definitive teaching on heaven and hell. And, 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 and when you think of it, there are some very interesting lessons to be found here. There is some reality to this all. That, in fact, there is a heaven and that there is a hell. And that there... That that personality and individual consciousness does in fact survive death and and is able to sense both the comfort that exists in heaven as well as the torment that exists in hell and that whatever condition that exists following death is in fact eternal and cannot be changed. These are the facts and, and they're right there within the passage. Powerful lessons and, and ones certainly supported throughout the rest of scriptures. And so there are those who see this as a teaching passage and use these points in order to define the afterlife, and that's okay. But it is a parable, however, and it's a story, and and it's told with a purpose, and here's where there's a whole other body of controversy. There are those who pick the details apart in order to make their own points, points like this, wealthy people don't go to heaven, (laughs) poor people do. Uh, over 5,000 studies are out there and of looking at this passage, and yet it is such a simple story that the disciples in hearing it would have known what Jesus said, that the Pharisees in hearing it would have been touched by what Jesus said. A simple story intended by Jesus for the very important purpose to prepare people, you and me, for our ultimate destination whether it be heaven or hell. A lot of people just automatically assume that they're going to heaven and that no preparations actually need to be made. Years ago, before programs like Alpha uh, with evangelism, there was an evangelistic program called Evangelism Explosion. How many of you are familiar with Evangelism Explosion? 
Anybody? Okay, you're showing your age. <laughs> and so am I. Evangelism explosion. It was a gospel presentation that began with two critical questions. The first one being, have you come to that point in your spiritual life where you know that if you were to die tonight, you would go to heaven? That is a great question. It really does measure the quality, the hope, and the assurance that people possess. Believe me, a lot of people assume that to be the case. Nine out of ten people I ask that question automatically respond by saying, yes, of course I'm going to heaven. I've got a Canadian passport. You know, of course I'm there. But then there has to be some sort of basis for that particular belief. And so Evangelism Explosion had a second question. And the question went this way. If you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Again, a majority of people would say something like, well, I've, I've been a, basically a good person, an upright citizen. I've, I've lived my life well, successfully. Sure, I've, I've made a few mistakes, and, but balanced against all the rest, I, I've, I've kept my nose clean. I've kept my life on track. I've been a good person. God will recognize that and reward that. And that's my answer at the gates of heaven. And that's the sort of thinking that caused Jesus to tell this parable. It's what I have on your sermon outline that you have in your bulletin there as the the standard operating procedure. Throughout chapter 16, Jesus had been teaching that no one can serve two masters. You see that in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, God or self, God or money. In verse 14, the immediate audience that picked up on that phrase were the Pharisees. And these were a group of people who seemingly had it all together. They were meticulously religious, upstanding citizens whose lives and lifestyles reflected all the benefits of clean living. They were successful, and they lived by a theology of success where such things as wealth and prosperity and health were in fact seen as signs of God's blessing. And heaven then could be assumed as the final reward of such a life. Now keep that in mind as I begin reading at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. Now Jesus doesn't name names here, even though I told you his name was Dives. Jesus doesn't name names here. He doesn't have to. The word purple and fine linen say enough. You see, the color purple was symbolic of royalty and dignity, and it was symbolic for all that God possessed on his throne. That and fine linen were representative of the construction of the temple in Exodus chapter 15. And it became then the standard style for the truly religious. And it was reflected in what they wore. It was their Sabbath go-to-meeting clothes, you might say, this robe of purple made out of linen. And so here what we have is someone who is played by the rules and who is re-reaping the rewards. And as they say, he's been there, he's done that, and he's got the robe to show for it. 
On the other hand, in verse 20, we meet Lazarus, and look at how he's described. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, now if you buy into the standard theology that equates prosperity as God's blessing, it stands to reason, then, that poverty was also a sign something of curse. It it was a sign that that you have got to have done something wrong. In fact, for the Pharisees, this story has a little addition, the addition of a dog to the story that, that seals this thought. You see, dogs were viewed as unclean animals, and to be licked by one would render you unclean as well. So that's the setup for the story. It's more than just an economic contrast. It's, it's a theological contrast. Things go well in life? Well, it must be the result of God's blessing. Things go badly in life? The question is, what have I done wrong? Is this God's way of punishing me? So you pause at the end of verse 21 and he asks the question of each one of these two characters laid out before us. Have you come to the point of, in your spiritual life where if you were to die tonight, you know that you would go to heaven? Hey, Divies, I got a question for you. Have you come to that point in your spiritual life that if you were to die tonight, you know that you would go to heaven? Of course. Hey, Lazarus. Have you come to that point in your life, in your spiritual life, where if you were to die tonight, you know that you would go to heaven? I don't think so. Whatever the answers might have been, whatever that case may have been, in verse 22, we find out their time is up. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried Lazarus to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he was buried. And then, without any break in the action, in hell, (laughs) where he was in torment, he looked up, and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. On your sermon outline, I call this the great reversal. When Lazarus died, there was no funeral. As a beggar, his body would have been carted away to the city dump and thrown into the potter's field. Simple as that. The rich man, no doubt, however, had an elaborate, well-attended funeral and would have been buried in a lavish tomb. But as their souls passed through the gates of death, their paths, in fact, crossed. And the angelic pallbearers carried Lazarus straight up into the bosom of Abraham while the rich man fell headlong down into the fires of hell. Can you picture that passage of the souls? Talk about ships passing in the night. And the the rules were so obviously different and the consequences so utterly final. Look at the consequences in verse 24. From the fires of hell, the rich man calls, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you're in agony. And, and besides all of this, between us there's a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, and nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Ain't going to happen. 
You see, heaven is not like earth. On earth, you can make choices that can, in fact, change the course of your life. You can cross chasms. You can cross bridges. You can repair decisions. There are second chances on earth. But once this life is over, that's it. A great chasm has been fixed and an uncrossable gulf that prevents any crossing of any kind from one reality to the other is already established. As we read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed for a man to die once, and then the judgment, finality. If I'd only known, can you imagine the regret of this rich man? If I'd only known the remorse and the surprise, If I'd only known, if I'd only known that the situation that exists is in fact final, if I had only known. Grasping this fact, the permanence of his doom, for the first time, notice this, for the very first time, the rich man actually began to think of someone other than himself. It awakened a a virtue, as it were, in his life. His five brothers came to mind. Brothers who are going to suffer a familiar, uh, the similar fate unless something radical happened in their hearts. And so in verse 27 he says, Then I beg you, Father, then send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He's thinking about somebody else. And Abraham replies, he said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, 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 Father Abraham, he he says. But if somebody from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. It's interesting that Jesus is saying this. The one who would rise from the dead and bring the message of the gospel of salvation to the whole world. That there will be some ears that will be that will be corked. People who will say, I can't hear you, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. You have the voice of Scripture. You have the voice of the Lord who will speak. One commentator writes, he says, this is the real tragedy. All along, the rich man knew that salvation depended upon Repentance. He had heard the message of Moses and the prophets, and yet he had not chosen to turn from his darkness while he had the chance. That's the tragedy. And so the truth was set in stone, and Abraham's presence in the story is a living testimony to the principle by which it all works, the principle of faith. It was Abraham who believed in God, who trusted God, and lived in utter dependence upon God, and to him it was counted as righteousness. I cannot help but think that these two two characters together, Lazarus and Abraham, become an eternal portrait of salvation. The name Lazarus literally means whom God helps, the one whom God helps. That's what Lazarus means. What a great name to describe someone who has learned that there are, in fact, limits to their strength, limits to their wisdom or their power or their abilities. Someone who has learned that they cannot depend upon themselves, they cannot earn or deserve heaven, but must lay aside pride, turn to God and surrender, and willingly adopt the name 
I am the one whom God helps. Can you say that of yourself? I am Lazarus. Yeah. Thank you. That's even better than saying amen. The rich man found himself in hell, not because he was rich, but but because he was utterly self-sufficient and found himself living a life that had no need for others and, in fact, no need for God. In Matthew 16, Jesus had asked, what good will it be for a man if he gains his whole world, needs nothing more than that, and then forfeits his own soul? For the rich man, the time to answer the question came too late. His mind was occupied by other things, and yet the word of God, which stands forever, kept the question alive. Will you turn to God in repentance and reliance and in faith? The book of Hebrews, in that book, while the the principle finality of death is set, the urgency of taking this ultimate test does come to life. In Hebrews chapter 3, it says, See to it then that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is still called today, as long as a chance is still there, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence that we have had at first. While I was reading this parable this week, I wondered, what if, for the rich man, this story had just been a dream? Add that to the 5,000 studies. This wasn't a parable. Let's say it was just a dream. What if this was just a dream, and, 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 and if I were to be able to walk this parable backwards from the end to the beginning, from the shock of hell back to the dinner table of life, all the way back to the heart of the Pharisees who were listening to Jesus, what would their reaction have been? What would have been the vision of what would the vision of life after death do to the decision that they would have made or the decision that you would make today? Would this vision of life after death give you pause as you considered the question as it is posed to you? Have you come to the place in your spiritual life where if you were to die tonight, you would go to heaven? Would the reality of the dynamics of faith, your share of Christ give you pause as you consider your answer to God. Why should I let you in my heaven? Because of your son. What would the vision of life after death do to the decisions that you make today? That was a question that was illustrated just a number of years ago by a young woman in Indiana. I kept that story it touches my heart. Her name was Billy Ray Bothwell. She was a high school student, and her English teacher assigned her, a class, her class to write a paper. And the title of the paper was The Last Week of My Life. And so she wrote this paper and what she would do if she only had one week to live. Today, she said, I live. A week from today, I die. If a situation like this came to me, I would probably weep. As, as soon as I realized that there were many things to be done, I would try to then gain my, re, regain my composure. The first day of my suddenly shortened life, I would choose to see all my loved ones and assure them I loved them all. And on the evening of the first day, I would, in the solace of my own room, ask God to give me the strength to bear with the rest of my precious days and give me his hand so that I could walk with him. 
On the second day I would rise to see the rising sun in all its beauty that I'd often cast aside for just a few moments of coveted sleep. On the third day I would spend alone, or not completely alone, but in the words of the presence of God's creation and goodness all around me, I would see undoubtedly many things that I had not seen before. On the fourth day I would prepare my will. The small sentimental things I possess, I would leave my family and friends. This being done, I would go on my way. I believe I would go to my mother and spend the rest of the day with her. We were always very close. I would want to assure her of my love, especially. On Friday, the fifth day, my life almost ended. I would seek my time with my minister, speaking to him of my spiritual life and seeking advice on how to improve it in the future. Well, I would like to go... With him to go visit those who are ill, I would silently be thankful that I I know no pain, and yet I know my destiny. And on this evening, I would be with someone special in my life and talk of his problems and try to comfort him. More than this, I would be happy in spirit in spite of the fact that we would never meet again. Saturday, I would spend visiting the sick, the shut-ins. I'd often put that off for another day. And on this, the night before my death, I probably would be awake much of the night, fearing my impending death and yet preparing for it, knowing that God is by my side. Upon awakening on Sunday morning, I would make the last preparations and then taking my Bible, I would go to church and spend my last hours in prayer and worship to ask God for courage to face the remaining hours that I might day gracefully and that my life might have some bearing on someone that would have glorified his holy name. Yes, my last hours would not be spent in agony, but in the perfect harmony of just my God and me. She turned that paper in, and she got an A. It was turned in on March 15th, and would have easily disappeared under a pile of assignments, except for one thing. Seven days later, on March 22nd, she lost her life in a tragic car accident. Three days later, at her funeral, this became her testimony. The letter read for her family and for her friends and for all who came And they found in it a profound comfort. And I cannot help but imagine that this became her eternal portrait as then people saw her resting in the bosom of Abraham. You never know when life will end, do you? You never know (laughs) what will be the last sermon you will ever hear. It could be this one. This could be the last sermon I ever preach. I have to realize that for myself. So let me just turn that around. We never know the limits of our life, really, do we? And since we don't know, maybe then, as Hebrews says, today is the day to turn to the living God and to do so with that prayer in your lips that would adopt a whole new name. I will be Lazarus the one who lives in dependence upon the God who loved me and gave himself for me. I will be that one. I will be his. That is the prayer that makes all the difference. Would you pray together with me? And so, gracious Heavenly Father, I would thank you for this life on this earth, for in it, Lord, you have been so gracious 
and your grace is measured by second chances and tremendous opportunities and repetition again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And Lord, I pray with a confession that sometimes we take that for granted. That issues that need to be resolved even now, issues, Lord, that determine eternal life, Lord, are not to be taken lightly, nor are they to be put off for another time. They're to be dealt with now and here. And so while we worship, we recognize your presence, and Lord, in your presence, then we give our prayer to you. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess that our lives have not been consumed by your will, but Lord, have been lived within sin. And so we pray with thanksgiving for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ that takes that away so that in this moment, even now, we might be able to stand and say, I will be yours. I abandon myself to your grace. I cast myself upon your salvation. And Lord, I give myself to you. I am yours and you are mine. And the answer on my lips that stands at the gate of heaven is, Jesus Christ is my Savior. Jesus Christ is my Lord. And I am simply Lazarus, the one he has helped.